put up with having plan B. Uh, oh, there are my glasses. I was wondering where they were. Uh, plan B last week, um, I ended up in hospital with cellulitis. And um, thank you to Billy Porch, who stepped in uh, very, at, at very short notice to preach last week. And also thank you very much to the, to the folk at Tikiponga who uh, had to make some uh, adjustments as well. And this week, who are also joining us uh, via Zoom, uh, so we can keep in step with our preaching plan. So welcome everybody, uh, particularly those who are with us via Zoom, from the lounge, from Tikipanga, and from their homes as well. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray that you would open up your word to us, that you might uh, speak to our hearts and encourage us through this uh, challenging uh, but uh, wonderful book of Revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. We are sadly used to seeing it in the face of war, disaster and trouble. The frantic flight of people trying to get away, desperately heading for safety. And that's been brought home again to us as we've watched what's happening in the Ukraine this week. But you might remember the grainy black and white photos of people clambering onto the roof of the American embassy, hoping for a seat on the last helicopter fleeing Saigon in 1975. Or well, similar scenes at the airport in Kabul last year as the Taliban swept back into power in Afghanistan. Or well, the ongoing plight of refugees streaming across the Mediterranean to escape poverty, persecution, war and conflict in inadequate boats, some making it or being plucked to safety by naval vessels, others perishing. We've seen it and we continue to see it and it's one of the horrific faces of suffering in the world. Who will be saved? Maybe less severe but closer to home and a little bit more relatable, We've all heard the tales of personal hardship, suffering and sorrow as people have not been able to get a place in MIQ to come back to New Zealand as our <coughs> border has been closed because of COVID. Maybe you and your family have been affected by that. The numbers are limited. Who will get in? Well, Revelation 6 speaks of the Lamb of God opening the seals on the scroll. And war and pestilence, famine and poverty, natural disaster and martyrdom um, coming forth from those scrolls. And Revelation 6 finishes with the people asking, who can be saved from this judgment, from these trials, from these difficulties? Who is going to get airlifted out? Who's going to get away safe? And instead of a deafening silence or an inadequate under-resourced rescue effort, Revelation 7 in two visions tells us that God is able to bring his people through times of trial. God can be trusted to save his people. All his people. The chapter... Chapter 7 starts with those words, after this I saw. Remember, we're not looking at a timeline of events here, but John is describing his vision. He's being spoken to in pictures and images. 
And it does seem that this passage is almost an interlude, an interruption in the flow of the book. We have six of the seven seals opened on the scroll and uh, we're waiting in, in great anticipation for the seventh to be opened and suddenly the scene changes and the theme changes. But as I've alluded to, what is said by these two visions is significant and important. It's an answer to the question, who can be saved? And it's full of encouragement for John's first uh, readers and for us. God is able to save his people, all his people, us included. The first scene happens on earth. It consists of a vision of five angels. John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, a metaphorical way of looking at the whole earth and the winds coming from all these different directions. And it's the first and only time they are mentioned in the book and uh, they are restraining the winds from doing any damage, which of course has not been mentioned at all so far, nor will it will be later in the book. But it's almost a, a picture of time stopping. Of time stopping. If you've watched a movie, suddenly from going for action, you know, it goes to slow-mo. Yeah, that's what's happening here. However we get this picture, it's the picture of the calm before the storm. And uh, things are put on hold for a specific reason. Reason. The, five, the fifth angel goes about with the seal of God and puts a seal on God's servants, marking them as belonging to God. Now, we're not shown what this entails. We're not told what the seal of God is on people's forehead or the process. But elsewhere in the New Testament, in, uh, I'm just going to move this back because I keep, I keep um, okay, is that fine? You're probably thinking, Howard's spitting on the microphone, that can't be good. Yeah, okay. But uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, in places like 2 Corinthians 1.22 and 5.5 and Ephesians 1.13-14 and 4.30, all over the place, the Holy Spirit is seen as the seal on, of God on those who believe. It's seen as a pledge that people belong to God, that we have... that we have been redeemed. That is a, a mark and a foretaste of what is to come, this relationship lived out in the presence of God. And of course, later in Revelation, we'll see that the beast marks all those who worship him, almost as a mockery of what's happening here. But here, first and foremost, God has marked his people out first, before it all happens. Now, John hears the angels say that the number of those sealed was 144,000 from every tribe of Israel. And we have a list of those 12 tribes with 12,000 from each. And we see the tribes listed. And it's a list that's in actual fact unique in Scripture. Because you'll notice that it started with Judah rather than Reuben, who is the oldest. It shows the importance of Judah as the tribe that Jesus came from. 
Both Joseph and his son Manasseh are said to be tribes, but Ephraim, the other son of Joseph, recorded in Old Testament lists, is not mentioned. Neither is Dan. Now, Dan may be left out because early on it was associated with idol worship in the Old Testament, and in some Jewish thought, the anti-Messiah was supposed to come from that tribe. But it's presented to us as a complete list of the 12 tribes. Now, 144,000, right, is uh, one of those revelation uh, numbers and moments where there are many different ways of interpreting what it means. And you may have had someone at your door talking about the 144,000 and you kind of thought, oh no, I've missed out. You know, because there's only 144,000. Jehovah's Witnesses used to say that the 144,000 spoke of people who had been taken up into heaven before 1935. Others see it as referring specifically to Jewish believers who were being spared during the trial that was to come or more specifically, will be or had been saved from the destruction of Jerusalem. Others tied in with the idea of rapture, that these saints are going to avoid the trial that uh, is to come. They're the fortunate ones who get a place on the plane. Well, another interpretation, which I believe, in my humble opinion, fits the, the best is just as the four corners of the earth is a way of speaking about the earth in its entirety. 144,000 is also a symbolic number, which conveys meaning rather than being a literal number. It is 12 times 12 times 1,000. And it conveys the idea of completeness. 12 is a number in scriptures of completeness. And we have a complete number from each of the complete tribes of of Israel. The complete family is represented. And it's multiplied by a thousand. Which, uh, again, has that idea of completion and totality. And we're going to strike that later in Revelation when we hear about the thousand-year reign, or the millennium. Is it an literal thousand-year reign? Or does it mean that it has come to its completion? So I believe this is a way of God talking about sealing all his servants, all his people, before the time of trial, before the coming winds of change and trouble blow. And uh, here are some of my thoughts why. Firstly, as I've already said, the numbers have significance as meaning total or all-encompassing. Secondly, that to limit to the, Jews, it to the Jews only goes beyond the New Testament idea of the people of God as being both Jew and Gentile together. Thirdly, in the text, those sealed are simply called the servants of God, which is a generic term, not specifically talking about the Jews. Fourthly, we now move to a second vision, and this one is in heaven. And we are standing before the, and standing before the throne are those who have endured and overcome, who are a crowd too big to number. They are people from every nation, every tribe, every people group, and every language. Again, that's language used to describe the inclusiveness and totality of the people of God before the throne. God is able to save his people, all 
his people. And of course, numbering them according to the tribes may also be a sign that these people will not be saved from the trials in as much as that they won't be saved from going through them. They're not going to suddenly be miraculously taken out, but are being sealed so that they can face what is to come. You see, in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, when the tribes are counted and numbered, they are numbered by the men of fighting age. And here we may catch a glimpse of God's servants being prepared for the conflict that is to come. And as we move through Revelation, we'll get into some of the different understandings of things like rapture, millennium, tribulation, and the raft of different ways of looking at them. But the key thought is ultimately God will save his people, all his people. So let's move on to the second vision. And again, we see it's a different vision because John says, after these things, I saw in verse 9. The scene has changed and John is back in the throne room and, and there we see a multitude beyond counting. Now, I don't know if you remember, got caught up with uh, President Trump saying that he had more people at his inauguration than the two million who were present at President Obama's inauguration. It, it became a huge internet battle between photos taken from the same place and people sort of counting the numbers of people that were there. You know, um, uh, you know and fake news and all these things thrown around. But here, there's no doubt. There's no doubt whose crowd is biggest because this one is not able to be counted. It's vast. It's a multitude beyond number. They they are people from all nations, from all tribes, from all people groups, all languages. You know, this is beyond massive. And they're dressed in crowns and white robes. Remember again that imagery of those who have overcome and have got the Olympic wreath on their, on their, on their heads. And they are also mentioned as having palm branches, which is a sign of victory and celebration. Now, it's interesting that John's Gospel is the only one to mention palm branches in his narrative of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. That's where we get the idea of Palm Sunday. So here you see there's a connection between John's gospel and the writer of Revelation. Um, And that triumphant entry is seen as a foreshadow of the procession in heaven. And the multitude here cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Here those who are redeemed by God acknowledge that it is God who has saved them. It's the lamb who by his sacrifice has redeemed them. You know, the cry is no longer Hosanna, which is save me. It's in the past. Salvation belongs to our God. Again, an echo of John's gospel of it is finished. And at this, John sees the rest of the heavenly court fall down and worship the angels and the 24 elders, and they agree with the multitude. Amen. They give praise and glory, wisdom and thanks. And thanks is a unique feature of the list in this chapter of the things that God is due. 
There's a way here that they're giving thanks to God for those that he has redeemed, for the fact that God has saved his people. And it may, uh, and then they go on to talk of honour and power and strength to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's an affirmation that God has done it. And then we have the vision explained by a question and answer. Often in the book of Revelation, if there's a question and answer kind of uh, thing going on between John and one of the, um, the characters, if I'm allowed to use that, that word in, in his vision, it's, it's the explanation happening. They often happen in this question and answer way. Um, the, the elder uh, asks, uh, you know, who, who are these in white robes and where have they come from? And John lets the elder tell him. And the elder says, those in white are the ones who have persevered through the great tribulation, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now the word translated tribulation in the NIV has caused us some difficulties as people think that it refers to some end times event. And you know, it just may focus on that. But for the readers of John in his day, they were aware of the coming trials that they would face. Like we too are aware of the difficulties that we and other Christians face around the world. You know, Russia and the Ukraine, our orthodox brothers and sisters in Christ, are going through that conflict at the moment. They need to hear the affirmation of Revelation chapter 7. But this image shows that through those times, through any coming time, that God has saved his people, all his people. The second thing is the idea of the blood of the lamb cleansing the robes. Now, uh, I know there's a genre of him that talks of fountains of blood that cleanses us from sin. But the blood of the lamb refers to Christ's death, the death of the lamb. It may go back to the Passover idea of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, but it affirms very strongly it's identifying with the death of Jesus Christ that we are redeemed. It is because of the death of the lamb. And there's a sense here that all the people who have endured following Christ to the end, be it their death and persecution or old age, are the, pardon me, before the throne. They're cleansed and saved by God's power through Jesus' death. Now, it's easy to think of salvation as simply saying a, a prayer, like buying an insurance policy. But here, and look, I'm showing my reformed bias, um, the idea of those around the throne are those who persevere to the end. Yes, saved by Christ alone, saved by faith alone, but who persevere in that faith. You know, that saving act changes everything. And here they are before the throne. And then the elder goes on to speak of the benefits of being washed in the blood, being redeemed by the Lamb. They are before the throne of God. This amazing picture of being welcomed in and able to stand pure and forgiven before God's throne, serving him day and night in the temple. You know, there are lots of pictures and scriptures that come to mind here. In 1 Peter, that we are living stones being built into the house of God, serving God with thanksgiving offerings. Again, in Peter, that we are a royal priesthood. It also ties it back to the 144,000 who are referred to as the servants of God. The one who sits on the throne will shelter them forever in his presence. 
You know, the idea of the dwelling in the house of the Lord. From Psalm 23, which talks about all of the way through our life and into eternity. And John 14, where Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. You know, and we will see this fulfilled in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22. But the servants of God are sheltered and will know the shelter and presence as they endure and go on and it will be their dw- our dwelling place forever. Never again will they be hungry. Never again will they be thirsty. Picking up Jesus' words about being living water in John 4. And Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The promise of Psalm 121 is mentioned here, of the sun not harming them. Again, the picture from the journey, not just the end point. Then we have this wonderful image of the Lamb who is at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. He will wipe away their tears. Isn't that a wonderful passage? There will be an end to suffering and a time of joy. The Lamb will bring them through in all, in, in all and to the place of renewal and refreshment. Okay, let's bring it all together. These two visions show that from beginning to end, God is able to mark out his people and save them. And bring them to be with him in heaven. The shepherd is the lamb. God is able to save all his people. All the seals of the scrolls are opened and we see the hardship and difficulties. And we can trust that God will lead us through. He has saved us and will ultimately bring us to himself. The shepherd is the lamb. Jesus has led the way through death into new life. We may face war, pestilence, martyrdom, natural disasters, poverty and famine and sickness, but God is the one who knows who we are and will bring us through to be with him and the Lamb, to a place of shelter, thanks, refreshment and joy. God will save his people, all his people. It gives us confidence and comfort as we face the trials that are to come. You know, the first martyr in Acts in the church history is Stephen, and as he's being stoned, he sees the same vision that John speaks of. He sees Christ on the throne, and it turns that senseless killing into witness and victory. Yes, there will be hardship and sorrow, pain and tribulation, as this world passes away. But be encouraged, God is able to save his people, all his people. We are sealed as his from the beginning, and we will be with him into eternity. So we can live out of that reality now, following and serving Jesus Christ, living there out the kingdom of God in the, the, the raging realms of this world with faith, and confidence and hope that God has saved his people, all his people. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the encouragement of this passage.